This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this video, we're talking about Protestantism. And if you're not a cessationist, you're not a Protestant. Uh, This and more in this episode of Remnant Radio. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a show where we tackle history, theology, and the gifts of the Spirit. My name is Joshua Lewis. I'm the pastor of King's Fellowship in Ada, Oklahoma, together with my friends Michael Miller at Reclamation Church Denver and Michael Roundtree at Bridgeway Church OKC. We set aside time every week to discuss the gifts of the Spirit. Things like, how should we pray for the sick? And and how do we interpret tongues? And should we believe all the prophetic words for the new year? If you're looking for a charismatic podcast with practitioners who are actually doing the stuff, this is the show for you. We've got a great episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about the hit film, the wonderful presentation that is the documentary Cessationism. If you didn't know, uh, I am quoted for saying that there's fantastic uh, video work, uh, graphics and special effects are on point. It's very well filmed. Uh, Anyway, I, mean, uh, I see all that to say. Effects, though, like really, they, I mean, are there explosions? Of... Is Tom Cruise like you know doing stunts? Doing his own stunts. Uh, here's the thing: it's a very well-made documentary. I said it. They took clips of it to promote it. I thought it was hilarious. I mean, good on them. Uh, anyway, all that to say, uh, we are back doing a response to this documentary. It's one of the things that brings us joy in life: is uh, reviewing cessationist claims and just showing how they're just completely unbiblical. Uh, we have uh, uh, made all of this content available online. If you want our resources, kind of the research that we've put together responding to cessationism, check out the newsletter. We will be releasing all of that uh, once the series responding to cessationism is over. We're going to be releasing that to the public. So if you're interested in getting some of the research and resources that we've put uh, together in our show notes, make sure to subscribe to that. And if you're new to the channel, hit the subscribe button, like the video, help us share this content around. Uh, And as a reminder, uh, if you are part of the Cessationist documentary crew and you want to come on and do a response to us, I know we've chatted with you uh, on Facebook Messenger. We've uh, taken phone calls and we've chatted back and forth. uh, But I want people to know on the front end, intellectual honesty on our side we are interested. We are asking. We are not just inviting, pleading. Come on, have a discussion with us. Promote your documentary on Remnant Radio, but but have an honest discussion with us on the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I, that's something that I'm very much looking forward to and letting our audience know that we're opening lines of communication to the people who've made this documentary uh, so that we can have a conversation about how we think this is extremely unbiblical and dangerous. So anyway, invitation open. Uh, guys, how are you guys doing? And are you looking forward to this episode? Looking forward to it, man. Looking forward to it. How about you over there, Miller? Miller is getting a new studio starting next week, so I know he's excited. I we're just trying to figure out. Like, I think we're gonna still call you Basement Boy, even though you you are gonna be out of the basement. Miller, are we? Attic. Are we dumping you instantly? Like, are, I know next week you're moving into that office space, but are you gonna be doing shows from there as soon as next week? Uh, no, not unless you come into town and set that studio up, because. 
I don't know how to do that. Okay. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe we'll do some of that here mine. soon. Definitely moving this into an like, office, but hopefully, because uh, we're traveling to Wisconsin this week, I I don't know how I'm going to get to Denver and get like him. One of those that. things that's never going to actually happen. Like he's never. He's just <laughs> he's talking about how one day he's going to get out of the basement, and we just kind of like nod and, and yeah. just sort of entertain him with like, uh huh, yeah, sure, one day, buddy, one day. <laughs> cool guys, we need to dive well, into this episode. We want people to know on the front end, we are continuationist. We love the gifts of the spirit. We love our cessationist brothers. We consider yes. them brothers. We consider them Christians. We have to say that on the front end of the show because we're really going to push back on some of these teachings and doctrines. We're going to push back on some of these interpretations of history. Uh, we're going to kind of expose some of the self-contradictions that are taking place in this film. And when you do stuff like that, things can be, seem a little spicy, a little aggressive, and we're not trying to put on that kind of posture. Uh, we believe these are Christian brothers, but we do want to engage with their arguments. Uh, we love them. We pray for them. We pray for them before we do our show. Uh, and we're, we're hoping that these kinds of discussions can help people who are on the fence realize, man, these things aren't super biblical. We want to help you pursue uh, the gifts of the Spirit because we think it's good for you, for the glorification of Christ and at the edification of the church. Uh, you guys ready to dive into this first video? Yeah, we're calling it clip number 13. Clip, right. uh, cessationists can't figure out their own timeline. Okay, so uh, let's play the clip. Play that beautiful wing footage. Later on, as we see particularly after the periods of persecution. Constantine has come into power. Christianity has become legalized. That's the time period where we see this expectation of the miraculous. You do have a kind of continuationism developing in Roman Catholicism. Their notion of canonizing certain people as saints was built upon the notion of the continuation of miraculous signs. One story says that when St. Patrick was baptized as an infant, the priest was blind and couldn't read the baptismal order. So he took the baby's hand, made the sign of the cross over the ground, and a spring of water burst forth to wash the priest's eyes, and his vision was restored, and he could perform the baptism. Now, that's just crazy legendary stuff. It's just crazy legendary stuff, guys. Cool. Let's dive into this first clip. Let's talk about it. Uh, let's start off with the timeline. Uh, this historian says that the gifts of the Spirit uh, seem to, like, be bolstered after 325, right? After Nicaea. Uh, I think he might have even said 324. 325 is, you know, uh, Nicene Creed is kind of like formalized completely, if, I'm, if I recall correctly. Um, and, and regardless, he says after this point, there's kind of this expectation of charismatic gifts. But that seems to be contradictory to the other things I've heard in the same documentary. Uh, when do you guys want to take it away? Yeah. Okay, sure. So we've, um, we've got Phil Johnson saying, you have an axe, for example. Paul would send pieces of fabric out. People would be healed by that. That's not happening anymore. And it wasn't happening in Paul's time either, because when he learned that Timothy had, uh, because uh, when he learned that Timothy had a stomach ailment, he couldn't hear him. He's talking about where Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach ache and for your frequent illnesses. And it's a common claim made by cessationists that the gifts were already dying out in the first century, that even in Paul's lifetime, they were beginning to die out. That's why Paul couldn't uh, heal Timothy, but they're actually starting with their own premise baked in that healing is always on demand. We look at that and we say, yeah, healing wasn't on demand because we also have other instances uh, Acts 28, 9, where Paul, at the end of his life, heals an entire island of people. He healed 100% of them. Pretty sure the healing gift's not dying out. So one, what Phil says is wrong. It's unbiblical. It's incorrect. Two, and this is the main point that we're trying to make in this case, is that you have a church historian that we just showed a clip of him saying the gifts began to come on to the scene around the fourth century. 
And we have a different cessationist saying they died out in the first century. So they died out in the first century. They exploded in the fourth century. I just want to ask my cessationist brothers and sisters in Christ, whom I dearly love, how can both be true? Uh, Miller, you want to read the next one? Yeah, sure. This next one is uh, from Josh Buse, president of G3 Ministry. I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name Is it pronounced Boyce? Boyce Buse? I'm not sure. He says this, though. Uh, He claims that they died out in the year 100. He says, a cessationist is one who believes that these gifts ceased after the apostolic age with the death of the last apostle John around the year 100. Those gifts passed off the scene. I think what's weird about this is, and and we've made this claim already, they didn't read the best charismatic theologians. They also clearly don't read each other because they can't get on the same page about this uh, topic or the primary did it die out yeah no or the they primary, don't have primary sources literally throughout church history that straight that up we've read that. they're not reading the contemporary folks who are quoting all of church history and showing how it didn't die out they're also not reading church history itself from the primary sources but Josh, I think you're about to say something. Well, I mean, we, we quoted all that stuff, right? So when they were saying, hey, no, the gifts yeah. died out at this point or the gifts died out at that point, we we walked through church history and said, well, no, actually in every age, we quoted Carson who said in every age, it's superfluous to think that these are just kind of like uh, uh, absurdities or demonic activity because in every church age, we see Christianity practicing charismatic gifts in every subsequent church age. So we we went through, okay, uh, uh, leading up to 400 AD, all the church fathers who believed in the charismatic gifts, including some of them that they mentioned, like Augustine, they just misquoted him because, again, later on in his life, he becomes uh, a charismatic, definitionally a continuationist, because he's got more miracles than he can count. Uh, we walked through, uh, you know, early church fathers. We walked through uh, uh, Christians after the year 400 whose normal experience was that of the charismatic gifts. Gifts, uh, who, people who prophesied regularly, people who saw uh, the, the sick get healed regularly, uh, people who saw demonic uh, uh, spirits being exercised regularly, and, and the kind of you know we, we start bringing up the church history stuff. They bring up church history saying everyone was a cessationist. There was no expectation for this. We respond with church history, and then people go, "Well, we all believe that God can heal," but this documentary is saying the apostolic sign gifts are prophecy and healing, right? These are the apostolic, in tongues, these are the apostolic sign gifts, and they only happened in this period of time, and they ceased in subsequent history. We're saying, in response to the documentary, maybe not all cessations everywhere, but in response to the documentary, prophecy was a regular occurrence after the year 400, leading up to the year 400. There was no time in subsequent church history when those gifts uh, were at any point in time ceasing, even though you have a quote from one guy in the East, it seems within every church age, a regular occurrence of prophecy and healing taking place. And these aren't just like off-brand church fathers. I mean, we're talking about name-brand church fathers throughout church history. Uh, Guys like uh, Novation, like Augustine, uh, uh, like Tertullian. These are like well-known uh, uh, defending of the Trinity sorts of scholars. So uh, we have this quote from from Bill that we just heard saying, after 325, uh, we we begin to see the gifts kind of re-emerging within church history. Uh, again, we quoted Phil Johnson. 
We've quoted Josh from G3 Ministries, uh, the de facto position of the early church uh, from the year 400 to the Protestant Reformation. The de facto position was cessationism, which was said by Nathan, uh, the executive vice president of the Master Seminary, in this same documentary. But now an actual historian is speaking up and he's saying after the year 325, we actually see an expectation of these supernatural miracles. I'm not quite sure what the position of Sam Waldron is here, uh, because he seems to suggest that uh, that there is uh, a kind of continuationism emerging within Roman Catholicism. The problem is that Roman Catholicism wasn't Roman until the Great Schism in like, what, 1053? So the idea that like all from the year 400 to 1053, uh, there was cessationism, and then it just kind of emerged again after 1053 within Roman Catholicism, unless, of course, Sam is saying that at the year 325, when Constantine legalized Christianity, that that's when Rome began to see charismatic things emerge. If that's the case, then it appears the way that Sam is talking about the gifts is to suggest that any period of time after the year 400, we should reject any testimony of these charismatic gifts because they're Romish. I, I think that so, that's disingenuous, yeah. and I don't think it's, it's an honest telling. Now, I don't know if Sam is saying that because it's just the way this was edited. I, I, I don't know what his whole context of that quote was, but if I'm going to, in good faith, take the argumentation of the cessationist documentary film crew, it appears as if they're saying, well, after 325, there are gifts that emerge and those are Roman Catholic. So don't worry about them. Uh, I don't care for that, um, whether that's done through editing or, you know, intentionality. I'm not sure. Right. So you have but you have another contradiction where Sam was saying, hey, this continuationism was a later thing, a Roman Catholic thing, whereas you have, you know, these other guys saying the gifts died out earlier. Uh, you uh, you have, I'll call him Nathan B. It's Nathan Busenitz or Busenitz uh, saying we're told to stop seeking those things as in sign gifts and to trust in the finished word. The Bible never says stop seeking those things. Actually, it says seek those things. The early church fathers knew this and they were not that they were not apostles. They knew that there was something distinct about the apostolic age. So when you get to, uh, for example, John Chrysostom in the East, Augustine uh, in the West, both are very clear. They believe the miraculous signs have ceased. We've been over this. Uh, Augustine recanted later in life. So he actually wasn't a cessationist. You shoot yourself in the foot there. Uh, and then uh, he goes on and says that was the de facto view of the Bible believing church throughout all subsequent church history, including the Reformation. So uh, so he says it was cessationism from then onward. And then uh, Sam says, well, uh, continuationism arose in the Roman Catholic Church. And I suppose that you could say, well, uh, yeah, the Roman Catholic Church that didn't believe the Bible. But to your point, Josh, it really depends on which time frame uh, Sam is talking about, because uh, Roman Catholicism uh, did not become like an official official thing until the schism uh, at the turn of the millennium. So it's hard to know exactly what they're talking about, but it looks like a contradiction. There's one more point that I want to make, because cessationists are always coming after uh, continuationists over the issue of sufficiency of scripture. Now, we've exhausted that subject. I'm not going to pick it up to, again today. Uh, but I also want to talk about another historic doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. And this was very big for the Reformers. And I want to bring this up because the, uh, and we're going to look at this clip later, we're, we're accused of not being Protestant, guys. We're, we're not actually Protestant because we're charismatics. And um, and one of the major points that the, pro that the 
Protestants made was that the scriptures are clear. I don't need a magisterium to tell my dinky little brain what the Bible means. Like the scriptures are clear for understanding the basic matter. It doesn't mean they're all the same as clear. Peter says that some of Paul's letters are harder to understand than others and, uh, and or some of his writings and, uh, and so on. So it doesn't mean that they're all pristinely clear to us. However, the doctrine of the clarity of scripture means that for salvation and sanctification with due and ordinary like pursuit uh, and with a little, you know, uh, you know, you might need a translation. You might need it. But like if you're trying hard enough, you can get it. That's the doctrine of clarity of scripture. So Psalm 19, the scriptures, uh, the scriptures are able to make wise the simple. Deuteronomy 6, we're to teach the scriptures to our children. Children can understand it. Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul makes a command directly to children. Children, obey your parents. And so we have this doctrine that's like, hey, even kids can get this. They can't necessarily, you know, decide their millennial view, but they can get it. And the point that I want to make is the cessationists can't get their timeline. Like this is completely unclear. Like there's nobody, nobody who would ever come to the conclusion that cessationism is true from just reading their Bible. Uh, and, and, and if I'm reading my Bible and my Bible is clear, this is a doctrine. It's, it, it's not that hard to decipher. It's, it's right there on the surface. And I think that it violates this, the clarity of scripture to claim cessationism is true. And I think cessationism strays further from Protestantism on that point. But let me be clear, cessationists are true Protestants, so I'm not going to go there. But I will say that this point of clarity of Scripture is a departure and uh, a concerning one. Well, here's so, the thing about Protestantism. Semper, well, I think I accidentally paused the live stream and I instantly clicked it back. So that's good. Um, here, here's the thing about the Protestant Reformation. Semper reformanda, right? Like always reforming is part of what we do as as Protestants, we believe in a Reformation that continues to reform. Um, if any area of doctrine or scripture or tradition rises itself up against the clear teaching of scripture, we ought to continue reforming. So I acknowledge that my brothers are Protestant. I just, I think I'm more Protestant because I'm still reforming. Like I didn't stop at, uh, you know, Westminster. I didn't stop at 1689 or 1644 or, you know, uh, the Augsburg Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism. Like I didn't, I didn't stop at there. I, I kept reforming. I kept realizing, well, wait a second, we've got some traditions that emerged as a response to Rome. Rome was saying, well, uh, you Protestants can't do miracles like we can, therefore you don't have the real Christian faith. And then the Protestants really ticked off going, hey, man, we're teaching doctrine and truth. Uh, What is this? Why aren't we seeing these kinds of manifestations? They must not exist anymore. And certainly the ones that Rome is seeing, you know, taking parts of the cross around and everyone's getting healed because there's a bazillion pieces of the cross and and someone's got, you know, Mary's breast milk that they're using to heal people with. I mean, there's just absurd stories of Roman Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic miracles. So the Protestants decide, well, to respond to Rome, therefore, these are all false miracles and, and there are no longer miracles today. And they overstated something in response to frankly, a hyper charismatic abuse. There was an abuse of practice taking place within Rome. So they overcorrected. I'm just saying as a reformer, as a Protestant guy, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. Let's continue to reform the tradition that is broken. So uh, I would say that we're holding to the core values of Sola Scriptura 
in a way that my cessationist brothers aren't. Love you guys, but uh, but I think we're being consistent. Josh, just to be clear, it was not all the Protestant Reformation that agreed or that, that made that argument. That was John Calvin who made that argument. Correct. But by and large, the, the Reformation was not necessarily cessationist. And we've got proof for that with the entire Scottish side of it. Some of the greatest reformers that that moved the needle on Reformation were in the Scottish church, one of them being John Knox, who was clearly not a cessationist. So you're talking about one small camp that is uh, 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 flourishing out of Calvin that was cessationist, but it wasn't spread across. This was not a universally agreed upon doctrine, uh, and it certainly wasn't historically universally agreed upon. That is, yeah. is absolutely certain. That's a good point. We'll get to there when when we get there. Uh, right. We are we are getting that clip very very soon. Um, here in the next two clips, we're going to be addressing that very point about the uh, the Scottish. Let's divines. talk about Patrick though. Yeah. So, but this quote, yeah, about about Saint Patrick. Um, here, what I what I find, and, and here's the, the thing: baptismal I, waters like the, magically flowing and healing yes. the guy's eyes. Yeah. Th- that that story from from Joel Beakey. By the way, I've got Joel Beakey's systematic theology on my shelf. I like Joel Beakey. I read his systematic theology. I think he's a swell dude. Um, I've got his book on the Puritans. Like, I, I think he's a good guy. I really enjoy his work. Uh, I'm not trying to, you know, bust him up on this. But uh, what I find a little disheartening is that in this telling of this story, well, this is just fantasy because it sounds outlandish. Now, granted, um, I do think that that stories should have a ring of truth to them. Uh, but I would just ask my my cessationist brothers to maybe take a pause and ask yourself, is this story more ridiculous? The baptismal water story. Is it more ridiculous than a talking donkey? Is it more ridiculous than uh, laying face to face on a dead boy in order to resuscitate him? Uh, Is it more ridiculous than um, uh, tying up a guy with his own belt like Agabus did to Paul? Or some guy stabbing the earth with an arrow in order to defeat some kind of enemy? Uh, Tossing a stick into a body of water to make an axe head float, uh, throwing mud in some guy's eyes in order for him to recover his sight. Um, God talking from a burning mountain or a burning bush. Um, I I, I don't know, like making a guy dip himself in water to be healed of leprosy. As much as I want to say, like, I understand the the skepticism of these stories in history. And I think that it's good to have a natural skepticism and ask good doctrinal questions of like, what was the gospel message being preached by these individuals? What's the fruit of this outcome? Did this did this healing stick? Like asking good, healthy questions is great, but just on the grounds that it sounds a little silly, we should completely reject it. I would just say that is a dangerous practice because you cannot yeah. believe the eyewitness testimonies and accounts of Jesus and the resurrection if you take that line of thinking. Well, we have witnesses, we have testimonies of this, we have all these accounts, this historical record, but we're going to reject it on the grounds that it sounds a little silly. Uh, I don't know, man. I, I think that the sun so, stayed in the sky and didn't move. Like I, I think God did some crazy wild things throughout the Bible that are just really hard to believe, but I serve this really, you know, What's the word I'm looking for? Ineffable God that I don't quite understand. So Craig Keener deals with this in his book on miracles. The uh, baking the your worldview into your belief system, and he, he mentions Hume in particular. But C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. He says this: it's the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age, and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. You must find out why it went out of date. 
And so here's, here's a guy who just doesn't, at the end of the day, he just doesn't believe these things happen. And the fact is, if he was to import or, or take his view and export it over to the early church when Jesus was actually doing miracles, he'd be saying the same thing. Well, yeah. nobody who's blind from birth gets healed when you spit on their eyes and spit on their tongue okay. and they're mute. Suddenly well, can yeah, and I'll, I'm going to offer mild pushback on this uh, to, to speak for Joel Beakey. I'm not 100% sure. Like, we don't actually know what kind of research he's done. I would say if he's only done cursory research, read the story and discounted it offhand because it is weird. Sure. I 100% agree with you that that is not a criteria for determining whether something is legendary or not, whether there was a true miracle or not. We can't, to your point, Josh, just use the standard of it is weird. And as a former cessationist myself, I confess that was basically my standard. I said it was the Bible, but the reality is I didn't like anything that seemed like too abnormal or freaky. And Josh, you listed a lot of those kinds of instances in the Bible. So we don't want to use that criteria, but it's definitely possible to give him the benefit of the doubt. It's definitely possible that he thoroughly researched this story and put all the pieces together, maybe even wanting to believe it. He probably didn't want to believe it's true. Anyway, but let, let me just, just try to love believes all things, right? So uh, uh, just not him when it comes to that miracle. Okay. Okay. So it could be that he. Really, I'm sorry. Really I don't think it. I can't give him the benefit and, of the doubt on that. It could be that he really researched it and came to that conclusion. That's at least in the realm of possibility. But I still think the objection stands that if this is our only criteria that it sounds weird, then it's not a biblical criteria because it's definitely weird when you have talking donkeys or tongues of fire dancing over people's heads. All that's weird. So we we got to have a better criteria than that. And that's, and that's what we need to be saying is that we are responding to the cessationist documentary. So whether Joel Beakey believes this on the grounds that, you know, oh, it's odd, or if he believes it on the grounds that he's done all this research and it was edited out, I don't know. I'm just responding to the documentary. Now, Joel Beakey that's is right. a theologian and historian. I mean, he's a scholar. I mean, he's, you know, and I, I think the same thing about Steve Lawson. I think Steve Lawson's a stud, man. Like, theologically, that dude is a rock star. I love him. You know, uh, Steve Nichols came on the show to talk about Calvin. Man, it was it was one of my favorite episodes on John Calvin. You should go check it out. Love it to death. But to hear him get up and talk about these three periods of miracles where co things were concentrated and and that these things cascaded out and like like there's just not a, a shred of scriptural evidence to prove those things. So again, like I have mad respect for these guys. I just the the, the clips I'm getting are are clips that are overstatements. They're broad brushes and and they're portrayed to the community as if because it's odd. Like whether whether Beaky wanted it that way or That's not, how it comes what across. is being conveyed to us through the cessation documentary is if it's weird, you shouldn't believe it. Um, and I just I wholeheartedly reject that. I think it's wrong. Um, you guys want to jump onto the next clip, or do y'all want to keep going? Yeah, yeah. Let's next roll tweet. with it. Let's uh, let's learn why to be we are not in Rome Protestant. with a uh, Roman Pontiff who believes that he's speaking on behalf of the Spirit and in doing so is bearing the word of God. To be there is not to be Protestant and biblical. And to be an Anabaptist, the charismatic of his day, or someone who believes that the Holy Spirit is speaking through all sorts of people outside the word of God and thus bearing the word of God is also not to be Protestant. In other words, to believe in sola scriptura is to be a cessationist. That's fundamental to Protestantism. Thus, if you are not a cessationist, you are not historically a Protestant. What a Chad. Um, that, it's like a Chad. It's because it's his name. Yeah, I said, what a Chad. Um, oh, okay. Listen, it's his name. I was just saying, okay. Uh, <laughs> who, who want, I, I felt like I've talked too much. One of you guys want to take this?
Miller? I want to no, share. No, no, you can get into this. I want to get into the the actual oh, uh, sure. historical well, side of it at the Protestant Reformation. Uh, sure. I mean, I'll I'll kick it off. I mean, we just have to ask. Like, uh, so Protestantism, it wasn't a monolith. There was uh, there were different beliefs across various uh, various issues, but we really have to come down to like what were the main things. Of course, you have uh, the the five solas, uh, sola fide, so faith alone, sola scriptura. Uh, it's the scripture alone, uh, sola gratia. So there, there's no personal merit in my salvation. Uh, and then, uh, and then we have, uh, uh, Christ Gloria and sola yeah, Christus. Tried, <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Anyway, but Christ's glory alone and for, uh, and for God's glory alone. I know I'm really sounding not Protestant that I left off the first two at first. Uh, but but the point is, this is what actually defined Protestantism. And spiritual gifts are not listed in that. And what they're trying to say, but spiritual gifts abandoned the scripture. So therefore, it doesn't apply to sola scriptura. But the sola scriptura simply means that the scriptures are our final authority, like that the church is not our final authority, that if there's like if the church is saying one thing and the Bible is saying another, the scripture is remains our final authority. It doesn't mean there are no other authorities. I think there are church. Uh, I mean, there are other authorities. I mean, you know, submit to your government. Romans 13, submit to your church leaders. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13. Uh, but all authority submits to the Bible. So sola scriptura, uh, scriptura is really an authority issue. And charismatics fully uphold the authority of scripture above even the prophetic word, that uh, that the prophetic word that we can misinterpret it. And I don't, uh, you know, that the revelation is, uh, is accurate, it is inerrant, but we might misinterpret that revelation. And so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone is a prophet or thinks he is a prophet, let him acknowledge that what I say to you is the Lord's command. The apostolic command trumps the prophetic command. Written revelation uh, from the apostles trumps spontaneous revelation of any supposed prophet. That in no way endangers sola scriptura. And if anything, the ones in endangering sola scriptura are the cessationists who say, Eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, means don't prophesy. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm going to say it, that actually contradicts the authority of Scripture because you're saying don't do that thing that the Bible says to do. When the other thing is, if you're going to say that sola scriptura means that there is no other form of revelation that comes from God, that literally contradicts the Scripture. I mean, if if Romans, if what Paul says in Romans is true, which I believe it is, that all creation itself is testifying to God that he is a creator. And so, but I, I'm not going to necessarily look at, you know, some person here in Colorado who goes to the mountains to see and, and worship other gods, that what he sees when he looks at the mountains is, you know, these other gods being true. I'm not going to look at that and go, he's right, because that contradicts the scriptures. Does that mean that nature itself doesn't reveal that God is a creator? No, it's still, that still holds true regardless. Um, so when he says sola scriptura, he's redefining that word. He's, again, baking his belief system into the solas rather than taking the reformers and actually looking at what they meant by those terms. 
I think that's in, well. Uh, if, if I'm going to take it like again, I'm, I'm going to play uh, the devil's advocate like Roundtree did in the last one and say, you know, he is saying historically what it is to be Protestant as it relates to the specific period of time uh, when when the Protestant Reformation emerged. In that very moment that it emerged, uh, the Protestant reformers, the leading reformers such as Luther and Calvin, were pushing back against Anabaptist and back against the Roman Catholics. The Anabaptists being the radical Reformation, and the, uh, the the Roman Catholics being the kind of foundational institutional church. Both were continuationist in practice. Now, I'll acknowledge that, that historically, in that very myopic sense, is to say that Protestantism is uh, cessationist, and to not be a, uh, to be a continuationist historically means that you are not a Protestant. Uh, however, I would just say that there have been plenty of Protestants throughout church history who have practiced the gifts or believed in the gifts that I, I wouldn't, you're, I, I can't say that, that these individuals are not Protestant as much as I would say that the Protestant Reformation grew and developed. Let me ask you this, um, you know, my friend who's watching on the other side, would you say that only those who uh, baptize infants are Protestant? Because if I want to take part of the Protestant Reformation, such as Martin Luther, who, who we could all probably say is the the founder and, and, and initiator of the Protestant Reformation, uh, he would baptize infants. Well, later, the Protestant Reformation continued to evolve and develop. And then some people emerged, the Anabaptists, and others would say, well, no, we're credo-baptists, and, and we're only going to baptize people who are professing believers. Now, are you going to say, no, those aren't historically Protestants, because they don't hold the original views of this very myopic group of people. I would say that's a reductionistic way of looking at church history, because ultimately, the only Protestants who could ever be considered Protestants are those who are historically Lutheran. Um, and I would say that I reject that claim entirely. I would say that Luther uh, is a Protestant. I would say that the, the 1644 and the 1689 guys are Protestant. I would say that the Presbyterians are Protestant. I would say that the Anglicans, in many ways, are Protestant. I would look at these individuals and say they're still protesting Rome on the grounds that Rome has some kind of magisterial authority to interpret the scriptures, that it's grace plus works that it's uh, it's scripture plus tradition it's the the glory of god plus the our glory being glorified here on the earth like i would say no the whole purpose of all of these things is to point us to jesus and the scriptures are our authority and we come to saving faith by grace through faith alone now if you can say those things you're a protestant right uh, i'm not going to uh take all of the views of the people in the protestant Re reformation and reduce them down to some kind of common denominator and then compare everyone to those things i, I don't think that's fair because you just take a different sample group and then no one's protestant but lutherans so I, I just i don't think that that is a healthy uh or, or honest approach to historically defining protestantism uh, i think if you can stand by the solas i think you're good uh what do you guys think about that? Any kind of follow-up thoughts, or do y'all want to get to the meat of our clips today, clip 15? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Go for it. Next one. Sweet. In terms of the origins of the modern charismatic movement, I think we have to start with someone like John Wesley in the mid-18th century in the evangelical awakening in England. He held a two-stage view of sanctification, that believers are converted, and then they live kind of an up-and-down Christian life for a while. And then it's possible at a later point post-conversion to have an experience that elevates you to a higher plane of spiritual existence or living. And in Wesley's view, you could actually attain perfection in this life prior to glory. Now, this is an interesting position. Uh, John Wesley, there's a lot of people who articulate John Wesley as holding this kind of position. Uh, we did an interview. Uh, Michael, do you remember the Wesleyan scholar that we interviewed on our show? Um, 
Uh, yeah, I remember him. He passed away. Did he make? Actually. He just died. Yeah, he was part of the United Methodist Church. His name and is Billy Abraham. Just died. Billy Abraham. Billy yeah, Horrible Billy story Abraham. that he died. I would encourage people maybe to go watch that that video. We're not really going to dive into that uh, too much in this video, uh, but he says that the statement of like living the second blessing to live in sinless perfection, um, that that is an overstatement. Um, also, I think it's interesting that uh, Nathan here talks about living in a higher plane of existence, trying to uh, compare what would be uh, new age verbiage to John Wesley, who uh, was very instrumental in the renewal and uh, great awakenings here that took place um anyway I, I would just say that 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 may be uh not the best language to use of him nor do i necessarily agree with it that being said i know that it is a overarching opinion and articulation of john wesley that he believed in a kind of sinless perfectionism by way of second blessing doctrine so i i, I well, totally to be fair, accept that that's a common articulation i just i disagree with it that's all that's right. all i'd say to with be that. fair there are many continuationist charismatic pentecostals that do believe in a second blessing uh doctrine where they would also say that you could become sinless and uh if you're then sinning you've you've lost your salvation and so which is such a weird thing to begin with because if you've gained your salvation by obtaining sinless perfectionism, then how could you ever sin again? But uh, obviously, I don't agree with that doctrine of sinless perfectionism, nor second blessing theology. Um, but but just to be fair, again, I, I do think there, that it is a common teaching, that there are a lot of people who believe this. Yeah. I think Todd White can err on that side sometimes. Uh, yeah, when he talks Dan about, uh, Yeah, Dan Muller. I, th I think they can err on that side a little bit, on right. sinless perfectionism, or they certainly cause people to think that they're not saved when they talk about how sinless they are. So, yeah. But, but when he goes after Wesley as sort of like spearheading right. the beginning of this second blessing framework that then the Pentecostals jump in on, uh, first of all, he talks about John Wesley like he's a bad dude. And last of all, I checked, John Wesley was a really good dude. I mean, he did great things with church. Didn't mean he didn't have flaws. He had a terrible marriage and so on. But like John Wesley was a great dude. And I, mean, I know the guys doing this film, they're all Calvinists, they're all Reformed. John Wesley was an Arminian. Is that contributing to why you're acting like, at least the way I understood your clip, guys, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like John Wesley was the enemy. Like, look, he introduced this bad thing, this second blessing theology, and then the Pentecostals went and ran with it. Uh, that's how I took it. You, you guys tell me if I'm wrong. But what I would also say is it's not just the Arminians. The, uh, take, like, the hero of most Reformed people. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I mean, he's right there with Charles Spurgeon, for some people, Jonathan Edwards. I mean, in terms of 20th century uh, preachers, reformed, if you say biggest 20th century reformed preacher, most people are going to say Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is extolled as a hero in the reformed camp. Guess what? He believed in a second blessing. Uh, he didn't call himself charismatic or Pentecostal, but he believed, and he, and he certainly wasn't like Methodist perfectionism. Uh, but he believed that there was a something, some kind of Holy Spirit juice that you could get post conversion that sounds like second blessing theology. Josh, you've read the same books I have. Uh, what was it? Prove All Things by Martin Lloyd. No, it was Joy Unspeakable, I think, was yep. the one that he wrote. Joy, Joy Unspeakable and Prove All Things. I mean, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones, Prove All Things. It's a hard book to get a hold of, and so is Joy Unspeakable. Um, but both of those books are him, Martin Lloyd-Jones, defending the gifts of the Spirit. Now, Prove All Things is a great response to a lot of the hyper-charismatic 
you know, overestimations. But Martin Lloyd-Jones believed in second blessing theology. He believed in a subsequent experience, a baptism of the spirit that would empower you. We don't necessarily hold to that language. We believe in subsequent experiences. We believe that God can empower you by the work of the spirit, you know, throughout your life through kind of subsequent encounters. But we wouldn't use baptism language. That's where we would depart from the classical Pentecostal traditions. Um, I did want to correct myself. For whatever reason, I misspoke and said, John Wesley was involved in the Great Awakenings, which is clearly not true. Um, being the founder of kind of the Methodist movement, you know, Francis Asbury would have been the one in America being the father of the American Methodist movement. I, I misspoke for whatever reason and thought it was necessary to correct myself on that. Um, go ahead. Well, I thought, I thought John and Charles Wesley were partly a part of the Second Great Awakening. Is that not true? I don't believe so. I think, I think, yeah, I think Wesley is before the, the, the great awakenings. Uh, I, I think George I Whitfield and say, the Wesley brothers. Yeah. Were, George, George, Wesley, George Whitfield for sure. Field, I, I would say he was part. So Josh, I think you misspoke by correcting your misspeak. I misspoke by correcting my misspoking. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you were right. Obviously that, what, what's, well, I think but, what's, but either way, <laughs> what's, what is true is he didn't start charismaticism in the West. Uh, well, America. and this is that, a really interesting true. point. He brings up second blessing theology and, and says, hey, you know, this this initiated with Edwards. But what's a, a little bit more accurate is that this originated with the Moravians who Wesley had gotten it from. Now, the Moravians, if you don't know, kind of lived under John Huss, uh, a proto Protestant before the Protestant Reformation happened. And John Huss had a bunch of Hussites who were following him uh, in his practice of Protestant rebellion. And they were persecuted because, again, early early Protestants before before Protestantism was popular. And, and these guys in a group of um, uh, Lutherans that were pietistic Lutherans kind of looked for religious liberty and hung out under the uh, the oversight of a of a German uh, uh, von what's his name uh, von Zinzendorf, Zinzendorf right so yeah so uh, uh, Count von Zinzendorf lets all these people hang out in in Germany where he's kind of overseeing and allows them to practice religious freedoms and it's actually in that setting that the second blessing doctrine emerges and it's in the Moravians life way before Whitfield uh, way before Wesley uh, that we see tongues and healings and prophecy as a result of some kind of second blessing um, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, kind of unrest that was taking place because these guys had all these different theological beliefs and how the government was going to be run in their in their specific region. Uh, lots of debate, so they instituted what would be twenty four hour prayer, and for a hundred years they prayed twenty four seven and and started living in sacrificial love toward one another. And they began to seeing supernatural power being poured out in their midst. There's stories of peace and, and worship services and prayer services where where God's presence would just kind of uh, 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 be poured out in the spaces. And, and you might be going, okay well, this is just like this hyper, you know, uh, spiritualism. Like they didn't really do anything. There was no fruit that bore witness to any of that. And it's like, well, well, no, actually these guys sold themselves into slavery to go throughout the Atlantic slave trade to proclaim the gospel. Like, I don't know of anyone in church history that's selling like themselves Saint into Patrick. slavery to preach the gospel. I mean, it's wild. Well, you know, as what's his name from earlier, what Joel, he just says, oh, well, we all know that that was just fictitious. Right. That doesn't happen. It, that's craziness. It just sounds like craziness. myth and legend. 
Anyway, these, so these Moravians speaking in tongues. Mm. The, the Moravians, he does say this. He does, and and I want to give this guy credit as well. It, it's true that a lot of Pentecostal and classical Pentecostal theology did find its origins in Wesley. Like there's nothing there's nothing untrue about that necessarily. However, what is untrue is to go from the Protestant Reformation and then skip a couple hundred years and then boom, let's hang out with Wesley. There was this period of time of Protestants that were experiencing and proclaiming. Uh, uh, you know, a kind of continuationism, can't call it Pentecostal, can't call it charismatic, but we certainly can say these apostolic, so-called apostolic sign gifts that were being practiced were being practiced in the early church. And we mentioned these earlier uh, in, in Scotland in particular, there are manifestations of supernatural power with George uh, uh, Wishart, with John Davison, uh, with John Knox, with John Welch, with uh, Robert Bruce, with Samuel Rutherford, with Charles Spurgeon. Not Sp- Charles Spurgeon wasn't necessarily a, uh, a Scottish, Scottish Protestant. Uh, uh, but all that to say that like these these Presbyterians and Spurgeon experience what would be considered apostolic sign gifts, prophecy and healing. Now, of course, I understand that many cessationists will want to redefine these gifts, but if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I'm calling it a duck. So if it looks like healing, uh, I'm not going to call it a miracle. And if it looks like prophecy, I'm going to call it prophecy and not a leading and a guiding. You guys want to pick up one of these stories and kind of tag team it? Yeah, I'll jump in with George Wisher just because he's my favorite. And we did do an entire episode on the Remnant Radio about him and many of the, the supernatural feats. But one of the, the sign gifts the cessationists will say ended is, in particular, is prophecy. And yet we've got John Knox saying of George Wishart that he was a prophet. Not just him, but many of the reformers said this of George Wishart. They all called him a prophet, which again, these the sign gifts, one of them that we would say is ceased in Ephesians 4 is the prophet. And so uh, we have on one example, George Wishart uh, predicts an attempt on his life. Uh, he was a mentor to John Knox, uh, again, who I said called him a prophet. Now, this is the, the quote I think it's worth reading. He says, he was not only singularly learned as well in godly knowledge as in all honest humane science, but also he was so clearly illuminated with the spirit of prophecy that he saw not only things pertaining to himself, but also such things as some towns and the whole realm afterward felt, which he forespoke not in secret, but in the audience of many. So here's a prophecy uh, that was given in front of large, several prophecies given to large audiences that they later actually saw come to pass. And we know that George Knox saw them come to pass because he lived after George Wishart. Um, so he made accurate predictions, including uh, about a plague that was going to hit Dundee. And then even afterwards, he went back to that town after the plague uh, hit the town and began ministering people at risk of his own life. And so this was a person who was willing to die for the faith and even take on the plague, uh, but he still uh, preached the gospel. Um, He also foretold his own death, which we've mentioned a a number of times, uh, where he was literally dying uh, by burning. And when they put him up on the stake to burn him, uh, he literally forgives the man who's about to light the fire. And the man is in tears, and then he predicts the death of the cardinal beaten, and says, uh, "You know, this man who looks down on me, he'll die in in this many days, just as ignominiously as he lays eyes on me dying." And sure enough, a few days later, he dies. And he didn't just predict his death; he predicted the very nature of the man's death, along with several others. So, I mean, I don't know what to say about this guy, but if you think John Knox is, uh, is is a reformer, then you have to recognize that John Knox clearly was a continuationist when he calls George Wishart 
a profit. This is, uh, and I don't know how you can knock Knox, pun intended. Uh, he was a major player in the Protestant Reformation. The Presbyterian yeah, we got, Church we got quotes today about him owes, as well. Right. The yeah. Presbyterian Church owes today him a great debt, which I also find ironic that um, the very guy who made this documentary cessationist doesn't even know his own history. Uh, this guy is Presbyterian, and one of his Presbyterian founders, a guy named John Knox, who was a continuationist. Yeah, and George yeah. Wisher. And one of these stories, I want to I want to pick up the story I didn't put in the show notes. So that story by by uh, Wisher was in fifteen. He lived fifteen thirteen to fifteen forty six. But this story is a little bit later on, sixteen eighty two. Alexander Peden. Um, now this story comes up in another documentary made by the G three guys um, called uh, The Essential Church. I wanted to dislike the video. I loved it so much. I go go watch that documentary. It was fantastic. I really really liked it. But in that documentary, they tell the story about a young man and his wife named John Brown and Isabel Brown. Okay, so Alexander Peden is actually responsible for marrying John Brown and Isabel. Uh, he officiates the wedding, but at the wedding ceremony, he tells Isabel, "Hey, uh, you should keep a linen sheet for burial." nearby because John, your husband, he's going to die. He's going to be a martyr. Uh, he tells her this. And three years later, uh, there is an individual, uh, Cla Claverhouse, who goes to the house where they're at. And, and he says, hey, recant, because during this time of the Protestant Reformation, the Anglican church was saying, hey, worship, the, not worship the king, but let the king uh, be in charge of the church. And the Presbyterians were saying, no, uh, the king has no say in the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He doesn't get to tell us when to meet. He doesn't get to tell us how to do service. Uh, this is our responsibility in light of the scriptures. We're protesting this rule, this reign. So they're very Protestant in that regard. So uh, th they're saying, hey, recant, uh, you know, submit to the king. John Brown's like, nope, not going to do it. Uh, Claverhouse is like, dude, uh, you should go pray because I'm, I'm going to 86 you pretty quick. And he turns around to his wife, uh, kisses her goodbye, makes sure that she's cool with him leaving, uh, kisses his children, prays for his kids. Hey, submit to mama, uh, turns around. And the bravery of this man just frustrates the tar out of Claverhouse. And he tells his soldiers to pull guns and shoot this man. And they hesitate. They're afraid to shoot him because he just walks with piety and bravery. So Claverhouse himself pulls a gun and shoots him in the head. And he asks Isabel, John Brown's wife, he goes, hey, you know, what do you think of your husband now? And she's like, hey, I've always thought of him to be a good man, but never as good as I think of him now. Like, she's just so, <laughs> such a bad mamma jamma. Okay, okay. Like, that's like one of the, to the disingenuous like, parts hey, like, of this. Standing there with a hole in his head, like totally yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. So she's sitting there like, yeah, but, but what's important and what gets skipped over in the G3 documentary, and it's gets Ironically, skipped over here in this piece of, 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 uh, of, uh, uh, of, of history is that she knew she had confidence. John Brown knew I'm going to leave my wife and I'm going to leave my kids and I'm going to suffer for the gospel. And I know this is God's will for me because I received a prophetic word. It gave him what? Courage. It, prophecy encouraged him. It gave him comfort. It comforted his family. She cherished her husband for three years, knowing that one day he was going to answer uh, to the king and the king was going to put this guy to death. And, and John Brown was able to take this event with courage. And Isabel had confidence that they were doing the very thing that God had called them to do. Now, you might argue, but but, you know, scripture, scripture commands us to do that. But remind, rem, be reminded that the Apostle Paul had the, the scriptures like the Apostle Paul wrote many of the scriptures, but in every place 
that the apostle would go. I actually have this written in my notes for my sermon on Sunday. Um, but but uh, in Acts, when the apostle would go in his ministry, in Acts 2, 23, in every house, every, every place that he would go, the Holy Spirit was bearing witness that he would one day suffer for the cause of Christ. He, he It's obvious that you're supposed to stand in front of tyranny. You're also obvious that it's, you're supposed to proclaim the gospel in front of kings and princes. You know, Jesus told us that we were going to have to do this. But, but still, the prophetic word that encouraged Paul, that gave him courage to face trial, prophecy was there to give him courage. And stories like this are rife in Alexander uh, uh, Peden's life. I just think they're super cool. This one in particular is so cool. Um, and, and it was the gift of prophecy that edified these individuals. Michael, you got a, you got a story from the, the Presbyterian scouts. Oh, hold on, hold on. Wait, wait a second. Uh, Josh, the, the, you left something out here. The fact that they're using Alexander Peden, uh, oh, sorry, they're, they're mentioning this guy, John Brown, uh, being a hero in this G3 documentary. There is a slight irony to this because Alexander Peden gives the testimony of this guy, Josh Brown, or John Brown, and he he gives this testimony because it was a prophetic word, but they leave that part out of it. Correct. They just talk about this guy being a hero of the faith, yeah. even though the reason he was so heroic was because he was prophesied to do this beforehand. Why was his wife strengthened? Why did she take comfort in the fact that he was going to die a martyr's death? Because it was prophesied beforehand. She saw it as God's will and submitted to it freely. That's what makes prophecy so darn compelling, is that it still encourages us to be courageous in the face of death. Um, but they don't mention any of that. They, they only use these reformers when it suits their purpose, but not when it contradicts their doctrine. All right. So, uh, guys, we've got... John Davidson, John Knox, John Welsh, Robert Bruce, Samuel Rutherford, Charles Spurgeon, just for our historical segment. Then we have some responses of their attacks on Storms, Grudem, Piper, and all charismatics as not being true charismatics. So, uh, not sorry, being true not, Christians. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. Not being true Christians. So, I don't know where we want to go. I'm going to read. Mr. Davidson here, though, if you guys who don't know Mr. Davidson, he is another pro, uh, Protestant, specifically Scottish reformer, and uh, lived in the 16th century, uh, was well known for his prophetic gift. This comes from a book by John Howey, uh, a biographical sketch of his life. Uh, I'm just going to read a little, just a, a few of the prophetic instances. Uh, so this is a guy like risking his life in order to defend Protestant doctrine. Uh, but you know, Protestants aren't care, uh, aren't Christians or, uh, sorry, I'm saying that wrong. I'm all over the place today, guys. Uh, Protestants are, are not Protestants or the next clip Christians. Anyway, here we go. Uh, Mr. Davidson displayed a strong sense of prophecy during his time. He was dedicated to building a church and Preston contribute contributed generously. Lord Newbattle, who initially promised support backed out. And Mr. Davidson predicted God's judgment on him, which later happened. He also urged for the de deposition of ministers who played football on the Sabbath, but was overruled by the Synod. He foresaw their rise to power, which did occur. Uh, so a couple of prophecies there. At dinner with Mr. Bruce, he predicted Bruce's fall from favor, which came true. Uh, during another meal, he told the magistrate he'd take them both to prison, which happened. He even foretold a man's punishment for beating a poor believer. It took place. He predicted a young man would uh, would succeed him in ministry. It came true. Mr. Davidson's remarkable prophetic abilities are well documented throughout his life. Uh, and so now I, I do want to be fair. There are cessationists who like have spaces for these kinds of phenomena. It's interesting to me um, that that's the case. 
the cessationists who make this documentary have no space whatsoever for this. They say that those things uh, stopped. They say that uh, people who practice these things aren't true Protestants, even though the Protestant reformers did these things. But there are other, uh, there, there are at the same time, other cessationists who say, well, I can fit this in. That was a, that was an impression, not a prophecy, whatever. We would disagree with that too. Uh, but I'm just putting out there the history of it. There, there's a lot of this stuff going on during the Reformation. So, That's guys, right. what do we want to do? Uh, do we want to keep going through history? Or man, do we want to I, I think I think we need to do our due diligence on the history stuff, man. We put a lot of content together, and this I think this is fascinating to people who are, maybe are oh, cessationists. Especially Robert the Bruce, man. He's, yeah, like, he's the guy in uh, Braveheart, man. Haven't you guys seen Braveheart? Well, this guy prophesied. Although we don't see that in the movie Braveheart. Yeah, we definitely need to go through some of these more, some more of these quotes. Yeah, do do uh, uh, Miller, if you would, do uh, John Welsh for us and kind of walk through some of, or or John Knox even, e e either or. I mean, we've just seen so many, you know, superb kind of demonstrations of power, and, and maybe we can just kind of read the kind of highlights. You can see those on the side, guys, where I've got like bullet yeah. points. These are the activities that these guys have done, and maybe only read one of the stories in detail. So, so maybe pick a good story, and then we'll read that in detail, and then we'll just kind of go through the highlights so that you know that this isn't a one-off. This isn't like, hey, this guy one time gave a word that might have been considered prophecy. Like, no, these are regular occurrences in their lives, regular he healings that they're seeing manifest around them. Yeah, so John Knox lived in 1514 through 1572. Uh, James Mel Melville referred to Knox saying he was the prophet and apostle of our nation, referring to Scotland. Now, on one occasion, and this is recorded in the Scots Worthies, written by uh, John Howie in 1781, he says, uh, this is a, a quote of John Knox. He says, Go, I pray you, and tell him for me in the name of God that unless he leave that evil course whereon he has entered, neither shall that rock, the castle of Edinburgh, afford him any help, nor the carnal wisdom of that man whom he counteth half a god, which is William Maitland of Lathington, uh, Mary's former secretary of state. It says, but he shall be pulled out of the nest and then brought down over the wall with shame and his carcass shall be hung before the sun. So God hath assured me. Uh, now, here's the interesting thing. The person he gives this prophetic word to ignores the message on May of 29th, uh, 29th of May, 1573. Then sure enough, Kirk Lady was forced to surrender the castle on August 3rd, 1573. He was hung in the same manner that Knox predicted. So he predicted the man's death. And how did he get this? God told him. How did God tell him? I thought God only speaks through the scriptures today according to um, their definition of sola scriptura. That's right. Let, let's walk through. I'll just walk through John Welsh real quick. He saw a ton of things. I've got some of them marked here. I'm not going to read any of them in great detail, uh, but just to move through. Uh, Samuel Rutherford said of Welsh that he was a heavenly, uh, prophetical, and apostolic man of God. Uh, he revived a nobleman from the dead through fervent prayer. Again, this is a multiple uh, day, like 48 hours of praying for this guy. He'd been dead for a hot minute, uh, and then he was raised from the dead. And the only actual injuries that he had were from people who had put things on his head and bound them real tight to prove to John Welsh that this man had actually died. Uh, so the only injury he sustained after his death was an injury from doctors trying to prove that he was actually dead, which is wild. <laughs> uh, but after 48 
hours, he prays from this dude and he raises from the dead. Uh, he accurately prophesied about individuals' uh, prosperity, blessing, and vocation. Uh, he, I think he specifically gave a word to a guy who would succeed him that had no expectation to being in ministry of any, of any sort. Uh, Welsh prophesied judgments, including loss of property and unexpected deaths. He prophesied people's deaths. He's at a dinner, gives a prophetic word about a guy who's mocking. He's like, dude, this guy is going gonna, is gonna to die. Uh, Welsh prophesied... Uh, 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 actions of significant importance in the lives of those he encountered. Uh, he predicted a young man who would succeed him. That's the, the one I mentioned earlier. Uh, he demonstrated the power of pros- prophecy uh, with a loss of profane gentleman's estate, with a loss of a profane gentleman's estate. So he prophesied that this guy would lose his whole estate because he was profane. Uh, he sensed uh, changes ahead for Scotland in his prayers. Uh, he was notable uh, for a, a strange light seeing during the night when he was when he was praying. A strange light would emit. Uh, again, this guy has got crazy, crazy signs and wonders that are following him. And not just occasionally, regularly. These stories are just rife throughout church history. Now, now here's the thing. If you're a cessationist group and there is a guy that you really, really like, you know what you don't talk about? The one thing you really disagree with them about. Like there are guys out there that I disagree with on doctrine. Like, for example, like I'm not a Calvinist. But I talk very well of Michael Roundtree. I don't typically talk about his Calvinism. Do you know why? I'm not a Calvinist, right? Uh, Yeah. Well, not in front of you, not to your face. I would never say nice things to you. I just say nice things about you. So, so, but but this is an example. Like I, I trust Michael Roundtree. Like just implicit, explicitly, in 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 any way that I can trust him, I trust him. Implicitly, explicitly, every way. All the implicitlys, all of them. Sleeping on my couch tonight. I, that's one of the reasons I trust him, right? So that's why I'm speaking well of him tonight. No, um, uh, all that to say that like, I trust Michael Roundtree, but I'm not going to be talking about his Calvinism because it's one area that I disagree with. So part of the Presbyterian tradition has lost this piece of history because they stopped talking about the very thing that was happening in their day because they didn't really agree with it to begin with. So it makes sense for guys like Chad to get up there and, and be a Chad and be like, you know, you can't be a Protestant and be a continuationist. That's not a thing. The Presbyterians were. The Presbyterians were seeing supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles regularly. I didn't just mention one guy. I've mentioned like six guys. And of those six guys, it wasn't like one occurrence. We're talking about lots and lots of occurrences. Uh, Michael Rancher, you want to talk about Robert Bruce or Samuel Rutherford? Maybe we can move uh, through these quickly. I, I want to do as many as we can. Sure. Yeah, Robert Bruce, uh, also known as Robert the Bruce, he's uh, he's portrayed in Braveheart. Uh, so this guy, 16th century, ultimately became a king of Scotland, big mover and shaker in in Scotland, part of their revolution and winning independence. So a huge historical figure in his own right, independent of his role in uh, in the Reformation, the Scottish Reformation. Uh, but he was a big player there too, and. Uh, and in the Scottish Reformation, he was well known for moving in the quote unquote sign gifts. Uh, he, a number of instances uh, recorded of him predicting things that came to pass. He was known to be a prophet, known to see miracles working. They would bring him people with epilepsy. They would bring him people with incurable diseases, and he would lay hands upon them. And his biography biographer says that they would be uh, they they would be immediately cured. Uh, he's reported as having angelic visitations hearing the audible voice of God, and I can guarantee you he believed in the sufficiency of Scripture, but when you hear a booming voice of God, it's just, it's the voice of God. It's what he heard. and uh, It was probably just like a leading, though. It wasn't prophecy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm just getting salty. 
<laughs> yeah. So basically the same kind of manifestations that you think of uh, when you think of the sign gifts. Uh, well, Robert the Bruce experienced all these and he was in Braveheart. So that that means they're, they definitely happen. Uh, I'm <laughs> so, uh, but no, it's uh, reliable. They can proclaim great. cessationism, but they can't take the gifts of the spirit. No, like, I don't know. Like, what do you, was, you just kind of like, <laughs> I, I was looking to squeeze freedom in there somehow, but I couldn't do it. Uh, Samuel Rutherford, uh, 17th century, another really well-known figure early on in my Christian life. I I read the letters of Samuel Rutherford and they just uh, overflow and drip with affection for Jesus. They were amazing. Uh, Well, he he believed in modern day prophecy and in, in fact, to such a measure that he actually gives a fourfold criteria for evaluating prophecy. Uh, he says they had to be not contradictory to the Bible. So there you go. Uh, they had to come from godly people. So, of course, in the scripture, a false prophet is uh, is somebody, you know, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. He's talking about people with character issues. Uh, ver- uh, number three, he says the people who had these revelations did not claim that their prophecies had the same authority as scripture. And they required no one to obey their prophecy. So they didn't put their prophecy at the level uh, of scripture, which we absolutely must obey. So he's going after authority. So, uh, man, I think that's a pretty good criteria for evaluating prophecy. But I, I don't hear any of the cessationists saying, well, Sam Rutherford, Samuel Rutherford actually wasn't a real, uh, a real Protestant. Protestant. No, he's actually one of the leading figures in Protestantism. So, uh, man, guys, we did a whole episode on Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Correct. I, I want to encourage y'all to go back and watch that. Uh, watch that episode. A bunch of this uh, this information uh, came out of a, a biography. I'm trying to remember what biography it was. Uh, do we have that recorded? Uh, yeah, here? yeah, it's it's in the notes here. So some of these came from that biography, "The Life of Charles Spurgeon," published in nine or 1892. Uh, page 76 is where a lot of this stuff comes from. I say page 76. I mean it's it's page 76 through like hundreds. That I particular mean, quote is yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah, 180 to 181. I mean, a, a, a lot of this comes from the life of Charles Spurgeon, again, published then. Once you see Azusa Street happen in like 1904, 1905, and starting to pick up steam, you you see the biographies of Spurgeon having less and less to do with supernatural activity, because again, you're trying to distance yourself from, you know, the second blessing folk and the charismatic folk. Uh, But the the claims in this documentary, or or documentary, this, this biography are insane. Multiple accounts of him giving words about secret knowledge of people's hearts, activities, Theft, keeping their shops open on the Sabbath, uh, having gin in a pocket during a service. You in the back row in the balcony, you've got gin in your pocket. Uh, people who give their life to the Lord because he had supernatural knowledge of who they were and called them out for their sin. Uh, multiple occurrences of people getting healed, fevered man, paralyzed man, uh, a man with gout got healed instantly, mental illness or even demonization instantly healed, child with uh, a fatal disease is healed. The, the, the documentary says this, thousands of cases like those have been related, might be gathered, and a great number of them have been collected, showing the wonderful agent of some uh, divine power exercised in, uh, in answer to prayer. Uh, he also says, the summary of his healing ministry, he, he makes the claim that there, uh, uh, well, 
those are thousands did not believe. Da, 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 da. There's a specific phrase that I'm looking for where he says, uh, Mr. Spurgeon saw more people healed than every doctor in all of England and North America. Yeah. Like we, they're just wild amounts of healings. He didn't pray for people and them not get healed. It, it, it seems that he was constantly seeing people get healed. Now, uh, it's an overstatement to say he never saw people not get healed because he has a quote in here. He goes, I don't know why God heals some and not others. I haven't thought about it too much. I don't really have a good theological explanation for it. Uh, but but man of God saw prophecy, saw healings, was uncomfortable calling them prophecies and healings, but saw them nevertheless. So again, in every subsequent church age, we're seeing supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles happening in denominations and movements where they didn't even believe it theologically. Uh, Roundtree, are you looking for a specific quote? Um, yeah, I'm right on the verge of it because I did the show notes for that episode and read that book. Uh, maybe it's this one. In 1861, it is said that this belief in Mr. Spurgeon's healing power became among some classes a positive superstition as he was obliged to overcome the very false and extravagant impressions. Uh, that's not it. Thousands it. of cases like it. these have been released been related I, I think you already read that one. yet no man probably in england or in america in this century has ever healed so many people as did mr spurgeon although he himself yes. uh, was was not he was not himself a physician and never wrote prescriptions he felt that there was an in, inexplainable uh mystery about the whole matter yet he asserted that there was no there there was some power connected with prayer which ought to be used when persons were in pain and could uh, be uh, relieved by by prayer. Uh, I mean, that's the quote, again, from Charles Spurgeon, uh, The Life of Charles Spurgeon, 1892, page 173. Like, yet probably not in England or all of America in this century. In this century, I've seen as many people healed. Like, that's wild. Uh, anyway, oh, but, but he's probably not a Protestant, Josh, guys. Just say, yeah, yeah. Probably not Cessationists a believe in miracles, though, Josh. They just don't oh, yeah. believe in the gift of miracles. That's right. Cessationists believe in healing. They just don't believe in the gift of healing. So clearly Spurgeon didn't have that. No, he didn't have the gift of healing, even though he saw more people healed than all doctors in England and America combined. <laughs> probably, probably just a miracle worker, you know, except that that makes it even more complicated because it's like you can say healing is not an apostolic sign gift. But how are you going to say miracles are not an apostolic sign gift? I, I don't know. Anyway, all that to say that, like, God has been doing things in history in subsequent history guys what do you think should hey, we i gotta add, yes i gotta add this let's do too. the last bit hey this is this is really relevant uh samuel rutherford was one of the authors of the westminster confession oh <laughs> so uh the westminster confession that uh that people think well you have to be a cessationist to heed the westminster confession well apparently you don't since one of the authors What's of wrong with you very people? clearly not a cessationist, <laughs> and in fact, gave criteria for uh, for how you know whether a prophecy and a prophet is truly from the Lord. So uh, so there you go. Maybe our Presbyterian brothers and sisters uh, could rethink a little bit their cessationism, considering it's allowed within the Westminster Confession. Uh, cool, guys. Let's so, hey, I think we need to... I, I know we're we're going a little long, but I think we should close out with those couple of videos, uh, Josh, yes. that we promised at the beginning. So uh, the reason the reason that we're sharing this, and maybe Michael Miller can speak into this a little bit more, I, I, as we're going through this documentary, we're going to continue going through the documentary. I think we're going to try to get Sam Storms on next week, joining with us and kind of engaging with the documentary, um, and and we're going to continue to maybe invite other people on. 
to to work through this. But uh, as we're showing these clips, I think we're showing these clips because we want you to know the heart of why this documentary was put together um, and the the kind of disingenuousness of 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 believing that man we're not even really christian brothers and that this is a different religion entirely uh and, and to say man if you come into this documentary with this kind of heart and expectation without reading our source material without kind of doing our engaging with us leading up into this point um you're going to create a documentary that's very one-sided so do y'all want to just play these clips back to back or should we play one and respond what do y'all think? Let me say one one thing on the front end, and then yeah, I just say play them back to back, and let's just comment on all of them so we can kind of nail it out. But uh, Les, the maker of this documentary, that's who we're going to show, and the reason I think it's important to show his statements about why he made this documentary and his commentary about charismatics is I think you need to see the heart behind this documentary. It's not intellectual honesty. He, he didn't read the source material, and it's, it's abundantly apparent by how he characterizes it. And on the other token, I actually don't think he would consider us Christian brothers based upon his own statements. Now, what he might actually say in conversation with me, it may very well be different. But again, when I look at the comments that he states publicly that he gives no qualification for in promotion of this film, it's, it's either intellectual sloppiness or it's disingenuous. But either way, it's wrong. And yeah, that's right. I think these clips will show that. Okay, cool. Let's jump through it. So you said you weren't terribly invested in the idea. You just took it for granted that you were a cessationist, but you became obviously more invested. And, and you said you learned a number of things. So what were some of the things that struck you? What were some of the things that you learned? Or, or why is it that you became more invested in really making the case for cessationism? So I guess I always saw it as sort of a silly thing that's going on in the church that um, it's just a very unserious kind of Christian experience. That's the way I sort of viewed it. Um, but the more I dug into it, I realized it's actually really dangerous. It's undercutting the gospel. It's undercutting the work of the Holy Spirit. It's just undercutting really every aspect of Christianity. And at the end of the day, it really is because of the practices that these people are doing, like you're practicing a different religion, some weird Gnostic magic, like I'm able to do miracles. And it's just like, this is not the normative Christian experience that the Reformed uh, tradition would teach you to, to follow at all. Um, and, you know, as you say in the movie, it's not biblical at all either. Um, so that's, you know, I just, I care. I love theology. I love uh, fighting for the truth. So once I really saw the dangers behind what's going on, uh, I just I just saw it as a mission that, you know, this really does need to happen and happen in a good way that uh, convinces people. That's what we do. We teach people to do magic. Were you aiming it at people who are unconvinced, people who maybe are in a charismatic church or continuationist situation, or were you thinking more along the lines of bolstering the confidence of those who are more or less like yourself already convinced? I think the best you can do in a situation like mine for this film is sort of uh, aim for the people on the fence. So people that are mostly reformed leaning mm-hmm. and maybe they're just not really sure if these gifts, like, you know, somebody who would love John Piper, for example. Right. Um, and we talk about Piper in the movie um, and we're trying to be gracious and gentle, but we also have to say that we truly believe he's wrong and he's doing something wrong. He's teaching something wrong. Um, so if you can kind of get people there, because then you can only lay so much uh, groundwork to get somebody to the arguments that you're going to make. And so I sort of have to take for granted that, you know, people think Sola Scriptura is probably right and, you know, important. Um, so, yeah, reformed leaning uh, people. Bible people. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But then, you know, you think that through. And so John Piper is one of those people that loves the Bible, clearly. Right. But somehow he ends up uh, convinced that speaking in tongues is the tongues of angels. It's like, yeah, so it's, right. it's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky because, you know, John Piper's teaching people to practice magic and worship another religion. You should interact with the Sam Storms in the in the world. Um, I think he's an Oklahoma guy, too. He's, he's out here where I'm at somewhere, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and some people don't know. Uh, Sam Storms, Wayne Grudem, mm-hmm. John Piper. These are, like, pretty well-respected guys, uh, yeah. theologically sound for the most part. And then it just so happens they also... Uh, embrace speaking in tongues and uh, prof- modern prophecy and things like that. So 
in the second trailer because throughout the movie we, we definitely wanted to take that uh, idea into consideration so the movie does deal with john piper and sam storms and wayne grudem <coughs> um and so we cut the second trailer together and put that out and it, it includes sam storms and then everybody was so angry because how dare you attack <laughs> sam storms yeah uh and put him in the same category as you know these other these other charismatics um, so you can't really you can't win either way no um but but yes it is that that's really the biggest problem with trying to prove to people that you know what you're doing is not biblical is um i mean it's a very common uh, statement when you start this conversation that they will say i just i've seen too much yeah. i've experienced too much you, there's no way you could, could convince me that you know that person wasn't healed or you know that i that i can't speak in tongues i can i, I can feel it when i speak yeah. in tongues i can feel it you know um that's so one of the, the difficult things I mean, as soon as you step outside of the word of God and then they're literally relying on anecdotes or personal experience, you have nothing at that point to really counteract it with. It's like, I can't, I can't trump your personal experience for you. And so I'll never get to a point where I can actually convince you. Um, at least yeah, they don't have like the experience. Mind. Yeah. Like the experience is, it's, it's the theology. It is the theology. So you're right. arguing against the fact that they had an experience and trying to tell them that the experience doesn't line up with the scripture. Is it? It, it, exactly. And that's, that's the, that's the competition, right? Because it's, if, if, uh, if you're comparing someone's experience to scripture and they contradict each other, meaning if your experience or whatever you're, you're, you think you've experienced does not present itself, present itself or is uh, in line with what scripture is taught for the gift or the experience itself, you've got conflict, right? And I think that's that's the problem where a lot of people run into. It's like, well, I can't deny my experience, even though it's not in the Bible. So therefore, I've got to assume some further revelation. And, so and, and that's, that's really where it gets so, so dangerous. Yeah, they've so definitely read Sam Storms and, and Grudem and Keener and Jack Deere because that, I mean, that's, that's my, been my experience of reading these guys um, is that, you know, uh, they are just building all of their doctrine on experience. When I read their books, they don't even quote scripture. They just, they teach magic and how to worship other gods in other religions entirely. Like uh, when you pick up, you know, understanding spiritual gifts, a comprehensive guide, it's just, it's just voodoo speculation and, and life experience it has nothing to do with the, like these guys, they have, they haven't read the source material. They haven't, they, they just, they're, they're, they're lobbing grenades over at the charismatic guys and saying, you know, uh, you know, we're supposed to engage with Sam Storms and, and, and Piper and, and, you know, Grudem and, and, you know, and we, we, we engage with them in the documentary. No, you say stuff about them. You don't engage with a single argument in the documentary. Um, you don't, you don't engage with first Corinthians 13. You don't engage with first uh, uh, Corinthians one, seven. You don't engage with Ephesians chapter four. Uh, you don't engage with how we respond to Ephesians two twenty. You don't engage with, the way that we we talk about the the eschaton and in the last days leading up to this eschatological period like you don't engage with that stuff like it's disingenuous it's wrong and, and but it doesn't matter right because we're not even christians why would you why would you give us the benefit of the doubt why would you trust why would you even read our books because we're not even believers right we're just you know worshiping some false god and practicing so, magic th this is to me no different than the kjv only guys it's like, oh, no, no, I, I, I've got this house of cards theology that I can't even look at an opposing argument because if I do, then everything just falls apart. And I think that's they're so scared of actually engaging with the content that they just refuse and, and demonize anybody who is on that side of it. Demonize it by saying, ah, well, we know that those were continuationists. Yeah. I don't really know. Just I mean, religion I don't and doing magic. I doubt. Well, I doubt that. That's what that's he's doing. Motive. I doubt that it's fear. Again, I just think they're so in that culture they just don't give it the time of day. Um, but I mean, I don't want to assign motives to him. But it well, is, he, he literally said he interacted with Sam Storms. I mean, that's that's what that clip says. Is you know we were criticized when we did this uh, when we did the first promo video because we were typecasting, and yeah, it was totally shock jock value, right? He acknowledges that. So then we did another promo where we used Sam Storms. But it, it, he's acting as though he's actually dealt with the content. He hasn't. He hasn't. Though. That's, he that's hasn't. right. That's, that's much, our problem that's is not. 
Our problem is not that he wrestled with Sam's arguments and then created his own cogent counter argument. The, the problem is he shows clips of Sam and then people just say, yeah, that's dumb. Like, I'm sorry. That's why it's a problem. And, uh, you know, when you use language like, you know, I used to think charismatics were just silly. So first of all, you're already not practicing love because you're, you're, you're like, I used to think they were silly, but now they're silly and terrible. You're already starting off on like a double wrong foot there. And uh, you're clearly not taking the other side. You're like, I didn't take them seriously. Then I investigated and I think they're terrible. I think they're dangerous. That's a paraphrase. I think it's a fair paraphrase. Um, Les, when you say that charismatics undercut the gospel with their, with their beliefs and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what would you say about Matthew 4.23, where Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing and casting out demons. So did Jesus undercut the gospel by the miracles he performed to display the gospel? Miracles don't undercut the gospel. They magnify the gospel. You call them sign gifts. I wouldn't call them that, but I will say the scripture does use the language of signs and wonders. A sign points beyond itself to something greater. What? The good news of King Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. When we see these kinds of miracles, when God performs signs and wonders, they magnify the gospel. They don't detract from the gospel. Your argument is made up. You literally made it up. It contradicts the Bible. Um, You say that charismatics belong to a different religion. You have literally lost 100% credibility when you say that. You've shown an inability to do theological triage where you can discern between first, second, and third tier doctrines. The spiritual gifts were not a first tier doctrine. Uh, That's why we're careful to repeatedly say cessationists are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we look forward to worshiping next to them for all of eternity. But you make it clear you don't believe that charismatics will even be with you in heaven. You believe I'm going to hell and that Remnant Radio is going to hell and sending people to hell. Why can I respect your theological position when you reflect a total inability to perform theological triage? There are a lot of other cessationists who can do that. Uh, You you clearly can't. Uh, Next, whenever you say that uh, that charismatics have a Gnostic version of the gospel. Could you help me understand how so? Because one of the tenets of Gnosticism is, uh, is that the spiritual always trumps the physical, the material, that we're sort of trapped in these prisons and one day we can be released from the prison of our body. It's, it's an emphasis on the spiritual and not the physical, the material. And, uh, and Christianity comes in and through uh, resurrection affirms, incarnation and resurrection affirms the material world. Okay, so I know you're in agreement with me so far. Well, the charismatic movement affirms that God wants to care for the whole person. That the, that the gospel doesn't just bless us spiritually and in no other way. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, that is the good news of God's reign. He announced that reign's beginning. Uh, 
And then he demonstrated it through signs and wonders. So Jesus comes and he announces and demonstrates this. And people who were sick suddenly get healed and the dead are getting raised. People's physical circumstances are changing. And the same thing happens in the book of Acts. So I would say that charismatic, far from being Gnosticism, actually affirms God's love for our materiality, our physicality in a way that cessationism doesn't. And at least on that point, cessationism leans more Gnostic than charismaticism. Uh, the last thing that I would say is you imply that Sam Storms and John Piper and some of these, and Wayne Grudem, that they came into their belief in the gifts of the Holy Spirit because of experience? Where have you read that? Where does Sam Storms talk about, well, I used to not believe in the gifts, but suddenly I, you know, received the gift of healing and, uh, and experienced all these signs and wonders. No, Sam was convinced by the Bible. Jack was convinced by the Bible. Uh, I don't remember Wayne Grudem's story of how he came into it. Michael Miller was convinced by the Bible. I was convinced by the Bible before we ever saw any of these things. So you falsely characterize the people that you're slandering as though they're making it up out of experience. And once again, many cessationists, not all of them, but many cessationists form a theology out of their in experience, I would say that it can happen both ways. Charismatics and cessationists both can create a theology out of experience rather than the scripture. And I just want to say sola scripture, that's where I want to go. And a lot of charismatics are that way. You paint with an unfair broad brush and you slander people that you have never read their stuff. Uh, the, the speech that you give, these videos, are are really despicable and should ne the things that you said should never be on Christian lips. I would like to weigh in maybe on the first statement, the first video clip when he said, you know, these I just thought that they were like crazy experience driven charismatics and I realized that they practice a different religion and maybe and then he said the word magic. Let me be charitable. Let me be as charitable as possible, which is hard for me to do in clips like this because there's no qualification. It's part it's part of the responsibility of the person speaking to give those kinds of qualifiers, you know. Um, so so so, and I and I've been guilty of this. I've I've made overstatements, and and I would I would want to say, hey, this is what I said, but this is really what I meant. And I would give less the benefit of the doubt if he was like, hey, I was talking about someone like a Copeland, right? I was talking about someone who preaches a prosperity gospel. Okay, I could see how you would think that's a false gospel. That that is that is a false gospel, right? You know, and and then he would say, you know, uh, I was talking about a person who believes that their words have like these faith containers that control the universe, like magic. Uh, okay, okay, yeah, like I could see how you would call, you know, um, the 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 hyper expressions of word of faith theology like a different religion and magic. Okay, so like I'm I'm kind I'm I could see. If you're talking in the Gnosticism, you know, we're talking about these people who are going to heaven in these supernatural encounters and they're coming down and teaching these things as infallible like Kat Kerr. Okay, I could see that being Gnosticism. I'm, I'm actually I'm actually on board if you qualified those statements with the word, the, the specific prosperity word of faith group or this very specific, you know, uh, uh, group of individuals who are declaring that they're God or this very specific group of individuals, um, you know, who are traveling to heaven and coming back with secret revelation. In fact, I want to put my money more in my mouth 
is and say we've been beating that same drum and saying that is a false gospel that is a false we, we're, we're making the content saying you know I, i'm concerned uh, about what's going on in bethel and i'm 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 deeply concerned that they had someone like copeland come and speak who, who's declaring that he's god who's who's making symbols of cutting his hand into the communion cups so like i'm i want to give an olive branch to my cessationist brothers maybe that's what you meant but like, man, qualify that because the word charismatic is such a catch all. It's such a big umbrella, you know, to, to say, you know, in one breath that Sam Storms is charismatic in one clip. And then another clip say, you know, the charismatic you know, group is a different faith that's practicing magic. Surely, surely you're not accusing Sam Storms and Wayne Grudem of practicing magic, except for in the fact that we didn't show this clip. But if you watch the rest of that clip, that the last clip that we showed in, in context, he accuses every charismatic who believes in spiritual gifts that they're at Hogwarts and they're pretending to practice magic. And he goes, well, you know, it's fun to pretend like it, it is deeply disingenuous. I don't care for it. I'd love to have a conversation in good faith. I, I'm still offering that conversation. Les, Tim, you guys, I I've had conversations with you. We've spoken on the phone. We've had messages over Facebook inviting you. Come on, we'll fly you down. We'll have, a, we'll have a, if you don't want to fly down, and you want to have a conversation, you know, uh, over, over the chat like we are here. We'd be happy to do that. Invite you into these conversations. Uh, but I, I feel like you have to answer for some of this stuff, man. You have to, you have to answer for some of these statements saying that charismatics aren't Christians. You have to answer for some of these statements uh, of, of how you're, you're making this case for Ephesians 2.20. You're making this case that the apostles were the only ones who are doing uh, uh, prophecy and the gift of healing. You have, you have to answer for this idea that there's only three periods of time that there are gifts of the Spirit that are taking place. And, and I just, I don't know how you're going to make that case, defend those statements. I think you're gonna have to walk a lot back, but I want to invite you on to have that discussion because I think it's necessary. I think it's good for Christian unity and charity. So continuing to invite you and in, 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 in trying to be as charitable and hospitable with your quotes as possible. Well, Miller, Miller just, tried to have a conversation with them and he told Miller no. Well, yeah, less, well right? he said that the documentary, less did, he said the documentary stands on its own. Um, and anytime I've asked him stuff like, have you read? He just doesn't respond to it. He, he well, never responds asked, to the actual questions Tim. I'm asking. Yeah, yeah and Tim, that's what I was going to say, Tim Josh. read Grudem's book on prophecy a long time ago, which is one that we don't necessarily agree with and we don't think is um, as good as some of the other pieces of, of content. But again, a lot of those guys that went to Bible school when you and asked like them, Southern and stuff. Yeah. When you asked him point blank, hey, did you read Sam's book? Did you read nope. Jack's book? Did nope. you read any of these? He's, no, he Hadn't. didn't. He hadn't. Which again just tells you they don't want to know the other side of it. That's why I'm saying well, this does. I don't know like about that. I don't know. Like I think, like I, I had a conversation with Tim. Tim seems like a cordial, kind guy. Like I don't want to put motives or words in their mouth. Like I, I think Tim believes the content he's producing is true. I believe he thinks that's a fair representation of the Bible. But I also think that it's that is a decision made out of ignorance. And and I don't think he's read the other side. He's got a full time job. He's a do, he's doing a documentary. He's a father. He's got kids. Uh, you know, he's involved in his local church. You know, he's making this documentary as like a side hustle on top of his other side hustles. Like I, I but when you're I making know. a documentary about another side of Christendom, when you're making a documentary, and that's that's literally what you're doing is you're making a documentary about continuationism and saying that it's false. Don't you think you should know their yeah. arguments? No, I would I, say I, dishonest and disingenuous. Uh, I, I would say, let not many of you be documentary makers that teach <laughs> James three one paraphrase. But you should all right? like the gift of prophecy. It's the same kind of. I mean, they're operating like teachers of the Bible. James says, "Let not many of you be teachers." Well, don't make a documentary if you're not going to do your research. That's all I would say. No, and, I, and and the implication and really teaching of James three one 
is that he, he says, because there's a higher responsibility, there's a higher accountability. And I just want to say to Les and the makers of this, of this documentary, this isn't like a, like a grudge that the remnant guys have. Uh, this is like, you're accountable before God almighty for promoting a film that you didn't even research to lots of people. Like, that's dangerous. I fear for your soul on this. Not because I think you're going to hell because of it, but you will have to answer for God to God for what you did. You didn't research the other side. I mean, if I'm if I'm doing a film on continuations, I'm reading the whole other side. Of course, I did read the other side because I was a cessationist. But you got to read the other side. So, so here's what I was trying to say because Miller said they didn't know and they don't want to know. I'm saying that they didn't do the work they should have. I agree, should have. That being said, um, that that doesn't that doesn't mean to me that they don't want to know. Um, I, I think that many of us kind of live within our echo chamber and good intentioned, well intentioned individuals who don't go above and beyond in specific areas, you know, uh, to to make sure that we're we're covering our bases. So, I, I, as much I'll as disagree. I agree with, I do agree with, I know I, I agree with Miller. I'll that take it a step further. They should have done it. They should have read the material. I'll take it a step further, but because when you say that these people are practicing magic and practicing a different religion, I'm sorry, but that kind of statement it 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 says more than just I, I'm ignorant. There is it promotes this idea to those who are on the fringe, which is the people he was trying to address with this uh, documentary. Those who are on the fence, not on the fringe, um, it, it suggests to them, "Hey, be afraid." of this because it's magic it's a different religion and so that's that's who he's trying to appeal appeal to like he's trying to demonize it intentionally and if you're going to do that i mean that that is but, that's dishonest and i i understand but like i'm saying that and, and i'm <laughs> here i am defending guys that i disagree with very deeply uh but like i i think that tim and les's response and engagements have just been very different and i just want to say that they're different people and i don't that, know that, may that be true. i don't know that i could hear tim in the conversation, I've had conversations with him on the phone. I've engaged with him over Facebook Messenger. Like I just, I cannot hear him saying charismatics worship another god. I cannot hear him say that Sam Storms is you know make believe pretending magic. Like I, I cannot but, hear him saying those does. words. But but I have heard less say those things, and I've also seen the the exchange between you guys, and it's just not been charitable. So I, I just I, I want to say as much as that, like, and and I'm pretty sure Tim is uh, Baptist, Reformed Baptist, and I'm pretty sure Les is Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian. So they they don't share all of the views. It's not a clustered like you know every person represents all three of them. Um, anyway, so all that to say uh, that invitations open. We still want to have a conversation with you. I, I still think you have to answer for some of that stuff. I think I think you know that. Um, and that's probably, yeah. Anyway, so um, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. An hour and 30 minutes. That's kind of been our new shot clock for this series on cessationism. We've got a playlist going four videos deep. Uh, this is video four. Next week is video five. Hoping to have the good doctor himself, Sam Storms, coming on uh, the program. So uh, if you want to be notified when we come out with content, make sure to hit subscribe because we're coming out with content like this all the time. Hit the like button and make sure to share this video around to your audience because, you know, uh, man, this is good stuff. And I want to keep telling the world that the gifts of the spirit are for today because it edifies the church and glorifies Christ. And we'll see you next Monday as we're talking about Nephilim. You guys excited about that? We're talking about Nephilim. Oh uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, I, Nephilim. I am dude. Miller loves the Nephilim. It's like <laughs> he is one. I tried to grow a six finger and toe. It just, I, I don't know how they did it. I don't know, uh, but maybe I'll find out on Monday.
I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.